Welcome to another episode of Rethinking Religion. And as I remember last time, we left off with the idea that we might take up a discussion of energy or subtle energy. And I think John said, okay, as long as we don't get too ridiculous about that. <laughs> so here to make sure that we don't get too ridiculous or to take us so far beyond the pale that ridiculous loses its meaning is Layman Pascal. He's going to get us going this morning. Okay, just the right amount of ridiculous or way too much so that it loses its meaning. Got it. So uh, in this series, we've been discussing and immersing ourselves in the ways that contemporary cognitive science and the philosophical needs of this historical moment and a metamodern or integrative post-metaphysical approach to spiritual traditions can come together to map validities for religion going forward. One of the things that's come up a lot for us is a, a new and ancient understanding of what the imaginal is and why that's relevant for making sense of the world and transforming individuals and communities in ways that are aligned with reality. Now, I've noted a few times that a lot of the esoteric traditions couple the imaginal with the etheric, that the broad category of mystical phenomenology and speculative ontology includes something like a subtle realm or a subtle body that's frequently analyzed as having um, an internal structural coupling, which is envisioned and felt by many as a subtle energy that conductively oscillates between and mutually informs the so-called astral and so-called vital functions, which might be roughly analogous to an imaginal principle and a reciprocal principle of affective and somatic vigor for the organism. So this uh, organizationally useful, vital, somatic affective stimulation is hinted at by terms like prana and kundalini and chi and orgone and lungpa and animal magnetism and all these great phrases. They don't necessarily describe the same precise phenomenon. They're used by different people with wildly different degrees of sophistication from the most vapid conflations to relatively complex approaches that edge into the discourses of physics and medicine. I personally deal with a lot of people who speak very freely about subtle energy and a lot of people who speak very skeptically about it. And while I've found it to be extraordinarily useful as a framing device to describe my own experience and to encourage certain practices in people, I have some concerns that require clarification. And my first major concern, which I touched on a minute ago, is that the referent of the term subtle energy is fundamentally ambiguous. It's mm -hmm. not clear from person to person whether they're talking about a metaphor for vitality and flow or whether they're simply pointing out that there's real physical bioelectromagnetism in and between organisms, which is often neglected by a science that defaults to chemistry and surgery, or whether, in fact, people are postulating an additional range of objective but qualitative energy not properly encompassed by the four fundamental forces. So the first problem is, which subtle energy are we talking about? And the second problem is, what the word energy even means and whether that's the appropriate phrasing. Because we can say on the one hand that energy is a very recent way of discussing this phenomenon, that it might indicate a kind of physics envy on the part of developmental practice communities, that older traditions use other metaphors such as those derived from music, harmony and resonance and frequency and attunement, terms derived from biology such as animal spirits, or terms derived from social metaphors like benediction and blessing and grace. On the other hand, though, we could say that energy is sometimes a very good phrasing 
since energetics puts us in mind of dynamic processes applying at multiple scales in multiple disciplines that are in principle amenable to quantification and ongoing scientific inquiry that speaks to the commonly felt sense of a resonance between somatic stimulation and vibratory physics and the deeper orchestration of communicative bodies in general. So that's my setup. Where do you gentlemen stand? <laughs> okay, well, I have had the great pleasure of last July um, speaking at the Subtle Bodies Conference um, organized by Charles Stang in an astonishingly beautiful resort in Tuscany, Italy. So I had to suffer through that, uh, but I did. Um, and then uh, again, being called to the Center for Research and Theory at Esalen for a conference again on subtle bodies and to present again. None of that work has been uh, made public yet, uh, but I'm gonna, I, I, of course, it's still part of my intellectual property. Um, so there are basically, um, and, and, and layman, Put his finger on many of the issues that were discussed at both of these conferences at length. There are three main paradigms, uh, as uh, outlined by Charles Stang, that coming out of this. I'm not saying this is definitive, but there was a lot of people here who've done a lot of work on, on these conferences, two different groups, and there was a sort of emerging consensus. It's at least a good foil for our discussion, I propose. Uh, the first is the paradigm that there really is some kind of super force out there. There's one kind, and that's and what we need to do is it's something like bioelectrical or something like that, and we need to study it. And there's certainly people do that, and there's certainly people running experiments right now. Now, the first thing to say about that is, while there are a lot of charlatans, I met good faith scientists doing this. I'm not convinced by their results, but I am convinced that they are running careful experiments, they're listening to the skeptics, they're putting in all kinds of controls, and they're finding some results. The reason why I'm still skeptical is because I know enough about the replication crisis. Their N is typically small. And this is one of the things that drives the replication crisis. I said, if you can replicate these experiments when your N is a thousand rather than 25, then I, I will defend you. Right now you aren't there. But I wanna make it clear that I met people who stand by this paradigm and they think that the culture variations are relatively unimportant because there's an underlying physical-like thing, and therefore it should be universal, it should be study studyable by the scientific method. Then there's a second group. The second group is, no, 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 subtle bodies are socially constructed ontologies, and I'm not quite sure what that means, but I have sort of a sense of what that means, and there are many kinds of subtle bodies that are created in many uh, type of uh, cultures, and you can only do a historical analysis and you can do some comparative stuff, but an attempts to get behind that, those historical narratives, those, those mythopoetic frameworks are ultimately doomed because you're trying to escape the social construction that is actually central to the ontology. Now, unbeknownst to me, I have become the third paradigm. <laughs> so uh, I've never been pronounced one before, but that's what happened at the conference. So I have argued that what is going on, and this picks up with uh, quite a few of the points that Lehman made, um, I have argued that the subtle body is an imaginally augmented realization of the, trans the inherent transjectivity of our embodiment. And that is why it has this weird ontology that vacillates between subjectivity and objectivity in ways that are very, very destabilizing of, of the two other accounts. So obviously I'm biased, 
So I'm going to be honest about my bias and give the arguments for it. I'm not going to pretend, well, these three, I don't see them as equal, right? So I'm not going to pretend that I do. Um, and that when it is imaginally augmentable such that it can be ritualized, and we've talked about ritual as, you know, it can be applied broadly and deeply in one's life, and it knits together all the levels of the psyche, all the kinds of knowing, then you have a powerful ritual. Uh, so when you get imaginally augmented realization of the transjectivity of embodiment that can be properly realized uh, and, and properly ritualized so that you get enhancement of meaning and wisdom and a sense of well-being that's what i argue uh, she is now, first people were saying were saying john was saying it's just it's not real and i keep correcting them until they finally got it no john is saying it's real john's saying it's not a real thing it's a real relation and relational ontology should be taking priority because we're getting increasing evidence. So that's the gist, and you get a sense of the, the main argument. It does, this position answers why the subjectivity, objectivity vacillation. It says why you can have a plethora of different kinds of metaphors because it's about the dynamics of, of, uh, of transjectivity. Um, it explains why it's so deeply connected to the body. Why is embodiment so important? It does that. And it gives priority to a relational ontology, which I think is just the right way to be going overall. So that's my initial response. And I tried to wear two hats. One, I was reporting. And then two, I was arguing for a particular position because I'm not going to pretend I don't have a, 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 a horse in this race because I do. I guess I have a few things I can add for getting us going too. One, I'm pretty amenable to the explanation that you offered, John. Uh, I do think that it's worth looking for some kind of physically detectable basis, but I haven't seen strong evidence for such yeah. yet. Yeah. Anecdotally, I I lived in Indonesia for a year, and I actually went there um, in part I went there to study music and, and, and things like that, but I had an opportunity to meet uh, a healer there and I didn't locate him. In fact, there's a kind of funny story about it. Uh, I looked for him. I tried to find him because I, I saw some videos about him and heard some people talking about him and I tried to locate him, but he had gone into hiding in that period of time. He was he he'd shown too much in his own account he had shown too much of what he's able to do felt deeply ashamed that he was causing harm with that and went into hiding so he did come out some years later but uh i was living at an ashram and i had been trying to locate him in this general area and i wasn't the day that i was leaving there was a guy who always fixed his motorcycle right in front of the door that i used to enter the um, ashram. The day I was leaving, the teacher said, oh, by the way, this is an energy healer right here. <laughs> it's like, I've been here for a whole year. <laughs> and I didn't know that there was one um, on my doorstep the whole time. Um, but I, at that point, I didn't have a chance to talk to him. But the thing I wanted to mention anecdotally about it is the individual who I was trying to locate, and I didn't get in touch with him, uh, he, he has met with scientists who tried to measure what he's doing. And he was able to do things in the room that they observed, like he touched the camera and shorted it out, made it stop working. He could touch people and make their body jerk back. And the guy said, what I'm doing 
is no different than what an electric eel does. I'm not doing anything magical. I'm doing a manipulation within my system, but nevertheless, it needs to be used for certain purposes. And so that's what his own account of what he was doing was. But when they tried to detect any flow of energy with any kind of you know equipment that we have to do that, nothing showed up or something really negligible. So it was definitely, you know, in that study that was done of him, very indecisive. Um, mm. Yeah, but it's interesting that something was able to manifest that they were able to observe and even get on film, uh, but no detection of of energy, you know, ener energy in in a physical sense. So, yeah, there's a couple of things uh, to say about that. One is uh, again. I, I want to make it clear. I know of good faith scientists who are doing good, well-designed experiments, uh, welcoming every possible thing from a skeptic and putting in the controls to deal with it. So I want to make clear that. Uh, but I also want to remind people that, you know, Randy, James Randy made a, a, a career out of showing these healers who were able to fool scientists but couldn't fool magicians. And this is why I keep saying, do you have a, a really good stage magician there during this event if you don't i don't want to hear about it yeah if you do and the stage magician goes well, i can't figure it out then I'll, and the n is large then i'll listen so for me those are the two non-negotiables don't talk to me about any of this until your n is large and you've got a really skilled stage magician there at the event Secondly, Mesmer was able to do these kinds of things with people too. I've done a historical study of Mesmer when I was in grad school, and he could do the thing where people would get shocked and they would fall to the ground, all of that. Mesmer, mesmerism was way more chaotic than what we now realize as hypnotism. Hypnotism is a real thing, right? Uh, Amir Raz was able to show that. It's a real thing. Uh, but of course, it has all this cultural variation running on top of it. So again, the fact that people can do this and do it honestly, Mesmer was not a fraud in the sense of a charlatan. He believed in what he was teaching and doing, and he believed he had animal magnetism, right? And so again, those are the reasons why I stand off from thinking that there might be something, I don't know what to call it because we've abandoned the category of the supernatural, but the, the, the non-natural perhaps. Now, I've already I've also said though I am completely open to conviction if two conditions are met. I'm not the, you know, no matter what you show me I won't believe, right? Meet these two conditions and then yep, we've got to reconsider this. Um and so I remain I hope completely agnostic like in a in an epistemic sense about that. Um so that's my reply to your reply because you know I've been, like I said I've been thinking a lot about this uh, I gave a talk way before um, I ever did Awakening for the Meaning Crisis on a naturalistic explanation of chi, and we're still in the process of revising that and turning it into a paper. I think people can do extraordinary things. I can do some extraordinary things because of, you know, three decades of Tai Chi Chuan. But on the other hand, I've also seen a, a lot of fraudulence too, um, and it's and it's often bound up with immorality. I'm not accusing your healer of being a fraud. I'm saying there's we have to we have to make sure there are multiple categories. There are frauds, and we have to just do what we can to eradicate them. <laughs> there are people who genuinely believe, but that doesn't mean they're right. Mesmer genuinely believed, but that doesn't mean he was right about what he was doing, right? And then I think there are good faith scientists who are really doing the right thing. And if they meet those two conditions, I'll take it. I'll take the 
the idea that there's stuff, I'm trying to use a really neutral term, right, out there physically in some, I'll take it seriously. But until then, I will remain um, resolutely agnostic. Yeah, as a uh, natural phenomenon, it should be subject to whatever rules prescribe the rest of our studies of natural phenomena. Right. If there's good science, then it becomes highly credible and never perfectly proven, but highly credible. So yes. that's my position as well. Yeah. I think for me personally, without a doubt, imaginally augmented uh, realization of the transjectivity of embodiment in a world of relational ontologies. That one's a given for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that was easy. <laughs> that was easy. Now, the other two, the other two that you brought in, are a little trickier uh, because it seems like there must be some element of socially constructed ontology involved. Yes, yes. And there's probably, there's some kind of objective phenomenon as well. And then the status of that objective phenomenon is in question and whether we're using the right analytical categories to approach that phenomenon are uncertain. Mm-hmm. It seems to me from my own experience, cellular stimulation is involved and the nervous system's ability to access that cellular stimulation. And we don't know how far that can go. Can it go to the point where you can modify because there are objective bioelectric fields in the body. Can you manipulate that through your nervous system? Probably a little. How far can that go? We don't really know. Uh, I like using a word like stimulation because it lets me off the hook for making very definitive claims, right? If you're breathing in prana, then that's uh, something you have to contest. But if there's a stimulation in your body in association with your inhalation, that's very straightforward. That doesn't have to be contested. Where I think it's interesting is um, there's a lot of ambiguity about whether we're discussing just bioelectricity or whether we're discussing something other than that when we say subtle energy, because some people need the one and some people need the other. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. And in addition to that, I think there's a potential conflation problem, which is we think of it all as one. When really, if you wanted to analyze it, there could be a whole spectrum of different kinds of these phenomenon that we would yeah. be looking for to rule in or rule out. Yeah, I, I, first of all, uh, to to um, I, I want to reinforce the point. I, uh, there's a there's a discussion between myself and Michael Levin, a couple on the meaning code, uh, Karen Wong's meaning code, and the first one, in fact, uh, Michael has done some amazing work. Uh, with showing that bioelectricity is a real thing, and it really does, and and in really rigorous, nobody's disputing his 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 scientific fault findings uh, as either you know weird or implausible. No, it's very you know, or, or not rigorous or any of that. And he's got at least some good theoretical connections to the placebo effect, um, and, and this and that, and there's a degree in, of learning so that like you know um, cellular level of learning. And that's the best word for it, by the way, uh, that can happen. And that the placebo effect is much more about this learning how to restructure. I got to use words very carefully here, um, sort of that bioelectricity. I think he's making a case for that being very plausible. And I I would no, have no problem. Nobody's shown this yet. But I would have no problem saying, well, you know, you've got these imag- imaginally augmented rituals, and then they also... Right, they allow people to uh, tap into the placebo effect, but the placebo effect isn't just the placebo effect. It's actually learning how to manipulate bioelectricity, and these extra things can be going. I have no problem with that either. I, I, I happen to think I, I'm not. My confidence isn't like 
80 or 90, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's significantly beyond zero that something like that is going to, going to come out. Um, and I think that, um, is again, something that has put it been put. I am not forgetting your second point, Lehman, but I think that has been put into a scientific framework for which scientific evidence can be gleaned and is being gleaned. And I think that might be the missing sort of physiological, uh, component to this. But I don't think it would have any of the wonderful properties it did unless it was being taken up into that framework I've been talking about already. Now, the uh, the, the thing about the multiples, the, yeah, that's a tricky one. And first of all, I don't deny it. Um, there's even room in the, in the paradigm uh, I, I proposed uh, because of the social construction of ritual and the social construction of sort of uh, worldviews that support ritual, and that's going to give you all kinds of variation. On remember, a proper part of what I proposed was it has to be ritualizable in order to be this kind of phenomena. It has to be shareable in in some really significant sense. And so I think there's a space for that, but yeah, uh, I also wonder about whether or not we are talking about multiple phenomena. It certainly overlaps with other phenomena. It overlaps with flow. Um, in a very real way. It overlaps with placebo, especially when we're starting to get an under, where placebo is not just a placeholder term, but an actual pointing to something that we're getting an underlying causal process. But I guess what I would then say as a scientist, I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I've got to try and find what it is that links them together as a natural kind, if it's going to be scientifically uh, studyable. Uh, if there are parts, and I'm not denying, because there is for every phenomena, if there are parts that aren't universal, that are culturally constructed or environmentally dependent, then, I, yeah, we need we need something other, maybe ethnography combined with history or something like that. And so, it might be that we have to be multidisciplinary if we find that the ontology is actually multiple multiple entities. I I, I guess I want to I, I just brute. Uh, Bruce, you can please respond as you were going to. I'm just wondering how, if we can bring this a little bit into religion. What does it have to do with religion, and um, and and how and why? Yes, there was that. That's one direction I'd like to go with that. So that's perfect. I think for me, there's no question that there's some social construction of this going on, yep. even within the same tradition general global tradition you have different sects and schools and they'll sometimes use the same elements but interpret them in different ways or even um, reorganize them like within tibetan tradition there's tukje and tang and rolpa and cell and all of those are words for energy and all of them point to different dimensions of energetic function in the body and all of them are usable within a pretty sophisticated system of tantric practice and, and actually manipulation of the body's systems. But not all of the teachers and schools will agree exactly what does what, right? So there's, there's this social construction element definitely in there. And there's within the system a differentiation among types of phenomena that are being discussed mm -hmm. that even our, our Western uh, vocabulary maybe doesn't approach um, if we're just using the one word energy, where they're actually talking about the intersection of multiple types of things. So I think that's one piece to look at. On the transjectivity part, and the, 
I actually love that framing too. I think it's very close to what a post-metaphysical, integral post-metaphysical approach would want to do, something that does bridge um, subject and object uh, in, you know, a relational ontology. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up is in the consilience talk, I mentioned that move that, that Jung makes to say, regardless of the metaphysical import of this, it's accessible as an experience. And we don't have to definitely establish its metaphysical import in order to work with it and have it actually be effective in some ways. So I think it's useful to still work with and practice, but I do also think that the scientific inquiry into it is important. But what I wanted to say about where it touches into religion and spirituality, there are a number of ways of working that I'm familiar with um, from the tantric schools and also diamond approach. And now, um, I mean, even focusing work is, uses some of this process work. I'm doing Steve Alethea, Steve's Alethea coaching. Yeah. And this type of working is in there as well. Yep. And so Anne Klein, she's a, a Buddhist scholar and a feminist, and she's really a really fine, beautiful human being out of Rice University. But she has a wonderful paper where she's talking about uh, energetic sensing as a bridge between the psychotherapeutic and the contemplative. And that in in any you know type of, of experience that we have, any kind of subjective experience and somatic experience, there tends to be a felt energetic quality that you can get in touch with, especially mm-hmm. if you refine your awareness a little bit and you can feel some kind of movement, some kind of qualities of flow or tension mm-hmm. or warmth or different kinds of sure. things that you can broadly encompass. And that working along that seam is really useful for bridging from psychotherapeutic into contemplative domains. And actually working along that seam can be more effective uh, than just doing talk therapy, for instance, yes, or yes. just emerging immersing yourself in formless states or something. Yes. Um, so that is a really fruitful area for working practically that I think helps to, uh, yeah, bridge the psychotherapeutic and, and the contemplative and, and spiritual and, and show the relevance of, of that kind of awareness that through energetic sensing. You see, that's a design principle for any ecology of practices. There are certain linchpin practices that you need, right, in order to synergize other practices together properly. And this is also something that needs to be thought about when you're designing an ecology of practice, uh, an ecology of practices. So, um, I, I like I, I like that idea about you know. Oh, I think maybe we should call them almost catalytic process uh, practices because of the the fu- that function that they perform, um, and you want to try and make your system as autocatalytic as possible as well. And I'm, I'm just going to note that down. So, but Bruce, I, I, I just want to probe a little bit. Is is it the bridging into the contemplation that is starting to fold us into how these? Because I mean, it's conceivable that people could practice all of this that they do. Uh, and and they aren't really in, in, in invested in things we might sort of prototypically call spirituality or religion. So there's not a necessary connection. So what would be an argument for a recommended connection? 
I'm following. Um, in other words, why would this necessarily be considered to uh, a recommended connection to the contemplative no. or to religion? What? What? I, I, well, okay. I, sorry, I was unclear. What I'm saying is, uh, uh, I'm trying to draw you a, a step beyond the point you just made, and it seems to me that people could practice uh, this. There are people that do, uh, right? And, and they and they and, and it's not part of their of a spirituality or a religion. So I don't think there's a, a a causal necessity, but they are very very frequently found together. I think that's also fair. So if we are if we're clear about that relationship, it's not necessary, but it's freak, they're frequently found together. Why? Why is it recommended then that they should that energy work and um, uh, and religion uh, go together? So for example, there um, I grew up as a kid, and as you know, in a Christian. But we grew up in a in a particular denomination in which this aspect of things was like really damped down, right? There, it was a right. But I had an aunt and uncle who were Pentecostal, and they talk, and it's very this energetic stuff, and and there was a lot of consternation. So there's also religion without. I know because I grew up in it. There's religion without, and even hostile to subtle subtle body work energy. That's the occult, and uh, that sort of non non-explanatory pejorative title that's just slapped on things um so what i'm saying is that the relationship between them is clearly not necessary yet it's frequently the case and i'm trying to understand like what is that what 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 is the relationship uh, between them that's 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 all i was trying to do did that did, uh, did that land this time yes it did yes and i would definitely say I've experienced also within religious traditions that don't want to go anywhere near yeah. any yeah. of that occult stuff yeah. um, and would reject it or be suspicious of it as an influence of dark forces or yes, something yes. like that. Um, if you work at that seam, it's very easy to move in and out of both contemplative and psychotherapeutic states. And I'm experiencing that right now in Aletheia, right. and I experienced that for years in the Diamond Approach. Diamond Approach wasn't as good of a test case because it's a ostensibly religious tradition, yeah. whereas Aletheia is bringing in people who don't have a religious or spiritual background, and yet they're accessing dimensions of their own experience in a very rapid way that I'm I'm actually in conversation with people who've been doing contemplative practice for 20 years, working on the jhanas and all of that, mm, yeah. and they're seeing people who have no background in that dropping into first and second jhana within a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you don't want to literalize that language in terms of like that there really is a jhana and it's you know yeah. independent yeah. of Buddhism. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm saying that there are there are states and ways of, of being and modes of, of sensitivity that are valued within certain religious traditions that working in this particular way is facilitating the opening of within people without a religious background. And so if we take an expanded view of religion and spirituality that we've tried to offer in, uh, in this series, yeah, which is, yeah. is not a belief cult, but yeah. a way of basically, you know, deeply working with attunement to and alignment to the fullness of being, 
um, and and through integrative processes and, and and those sorts of things that that creates this excess that that layman likes to talk about or that you know that a lot of people like to talk about. That's a broader expanded definition in which they're recommended to each other. I don't think you, you know um, somebody in a a particular conservative church needs to pick this up or say, okay, this is essential to religion. I'm not trying to to insert yeah, yeah, yeah. it in that way. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there's you can work you can work with the that energetic feeling and have uh, both it open up into deep insights about particular psycho uh, psychological and emotional yes. constellations and actually loosen or release blockages and fixations in those ways in a way that is pretty impactful or moving more and more subtly into the felt energetic state can open up into feelings of expanded um, presence and well-being um, that are often identified in mystical traditions and give one little anecdote here from from diamond approach there was a a woman complaining about uh, complaining and, and suffering with self-image and other kinds of things going on, and they were doing some body sensing. Mm -hmm. She was not able to feel anything in her chest area. Oh, and just it was like a dead zone. She could feel other parts of her body, but it was a dead zone. So they got curious about that and and, and got her into feeling into the chest area. What's what's going on here and if it's just nothing, just feel the nothing, just be with the nothing. And so as she moved into that, she started getting these images coming up of her mother's really biting words to her as a child. Oh, and those biting words to her, she said, she, she started getting the image of those words were stabbing her in the heart. Yeah, right. And so they just were with that for a while and, and let her open into that in diamond approach that's called a hole it's an area where it's it's blocked right you don't have access to that part of your body or your energy field so she felt into that for a while eventually as it it moved from emptiness into a feeling of spaciousness uh this this honey like golden something just welled up from within her and it was both a felt thing that actually was moving through her whole body and an imaginal thing of this this golden color that just mm. um put her into a state of ecstasy for a little bit. And that by itself actually released so many things that she was holding and put herself back into a, into touch with her own sense of, of intrinsic value, independent of her mother's words. And then working through that, you have to use, you know, you can ground it and integrate it and all kinds of things, but arguably that, felt experience which opened up ultimately into a feeling of just absolute well-being and expandedness and a, a release of a contracted identity into a, a spacious receptiveness to whatever was arising without a need to change it all of these things that are consonant with a mystical kind of description of the state of well-being um, that that was facilitated for her pretty quickly and then you have to find ways to work with that and, and stabilize that and integrate that and so there's some element of construction and, and you know, it, it, it's not claiming any kind of magic happening, but it, 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 moved, it moved between those two sides pretty, pretty smoothly. That makes me think of Michael Washburn's notion of 
body armor and the experiences of the dynamic ground is milk and honey. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, right. My, um, I mean, a lot of this goes to what is a religion <laughs> and what's a normative example of it, let's say, because we can think of a medical system that rejects bioelectricity and focuses only on surgery and chemistry as being you know, a functional medical system, but it's far short of a full spectrum medical mm -hmm. response. Mm -hmm. So we have religions that might not be interested in this stuff. But we might say they're a, a narrow version of a general, healthy, comprehensive religious phenomenon. Uh, and for me, the religious phenomenon has to organize the, the parts of people's experience across genres of social activity. So yes, there some people are into various energy practices and don't consider themselves religious, but a religion should be able to incorporate and coordinate those people with the other dimensions and domains and disciplines. Uh, where does it become specifically religious? I think um, one thing is the religion has to be able to draw people who are somatically sensitive to it, to plug them into um, socially virtuous and self-regulatory mm -hmm. wisdom practices rather mm -hmm. than have them fall outside of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think um, notions of energy flow often can function as a good general heuristic for how we deal with complex systems, which include, you know, all of reality, so to speak, and nature. Yeah, I think there's religion, spirituality are often concerned with uh, an amplified version of your perceptual experience, right? How do you get more out of being a perceiver and experiencer in the world? And you talk a lot, John, about like, you got to make sure you don't stay totally confined within the the category that you're experiencing through. You got to sway back and forth yeah, across yes. that line. And the notion that there's an energetic phenomenon in the space just outside of physical bodies allows you to do that to some degree. And the notion that there that's even built into perception that there's a mm -hmm. stimulating aspect to perception, which if we can zero our nervous system in on, we can get a, a richer and less a predefined notion of what we're perceiving so that we actually have access to a richer version of that perception. Yeah. Excellent. I think religion has to take, um, take care of the people, so to speak. And that has several aspects. One is the people have to be oriented toward the health of their organism, right? This is one of Nietzsche's big critiques about religion, that it's sort of anti-life rather than life friendly. Well, stimulation of the organ and cellular systems is a big way in which we stay attuned to the body. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, tai Chi and other kinds of energy practices are a fundamental component of general health. And I think Bruce touched on this a little bit earlier. Mind training is essential for populations to be able to function well. Religion uh, takes that into its care, but uh, focusing and holding attention on stimulation patterns is a very good exercise for generalized mind training. The people who are engaged in, you know, holding energy spots or something that aren't just working energy, they're working sustained intentional focus practices. Yes. So to have that proliferate through the population is a religious concern. And the other one that stands out to me is that uh, intensified experience of abstract stimulations can provoke altered state experiences. Right. Mm -hmm. So the famous example is Kundalini. You you keep your attention on the stimulation until some transformation is produced and and probing through those different states of consciousness is one of the fundamental aspects of spirituality and religion. And there's a direct route from 
working with energy, so to speak, to activating certain kinds of states that we might need to activate in order to have a more general shared notion of what is real together. I found all of that excellent. I, I have no crit, no critical response. I would just add what I was going to answer, and I think this resonates very much with you, is I think subtle body work can give us a profoundly present realization of non-propositional knowing and therefore enhance religio and get us more ratio religio, properly proportioned religio. And I think one of the primary functions of religion, as I've argued elsewhere, is to exactly do that um, in order to enhance meaning and uh, wisdom. So that's my additional thing of how I think the subtle body can play a role um, insofar as it it is a uh, it is an embodied tutorial on non-propositional knowing uh, that makes you really challenge your ignorance about non-propositional knowing and help you to pursue enhancing it in, in powerful ways. And I think that becomes a properly religious project. Since I'm immersed in that, uh, I'll I'll take a a cue from what they talk about in Aletheia, but it's drawn from you know multiple diamond approach and process and 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 all, all kinds of approaches. It's a synthesis of those things. Yeah, Steve's um, work is really impressive. It is really good. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is notable about subtle body work or subtle energy work is one. It does ask you, in fact, what's useful about Aletheia is it starts with the propositional. Typically, you do parts work, you do dialogue, you yep. you actually work with psychological, verbal content and, and that sort of thing. But you move closer to feeling what's happening in the body, and this is a big yep. part of multiple approaches. And that can uh, help you mediate uh between the non-propositional and the propositional um, and actually deepen into yeah. um, other modes. First, you, you can move into process where you just feel that there's um, something moving. Uh, there's there's some, some kind of tension, there's some kind of moving, and you begin to uh, uh, attend to the architecture of that beyond just the the content. And that's, I found in a lot of contemplative training schools, um, it's really important. That's a, a decisive developmental move yeah. is yeah. to be able to differentiate between content and process. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and so you begin to become construct aware in, in some sense. Um, you begin to make the subject into object by becoming aware of process and not just being immersed in the content. But the more that you become aware of that, if you if you move participatorily into the experience of process, that can open up into, you could say, more stabilized feelings of presence um, and absence. Uh, sometimes you will feel, uh, you know, something present, but sometimes you also will feel a nothingness or the boundary or the unknownness of things. It, it, it puts you kind of in the Henry Bortoft area of, 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 of beginning to feel into the wholeness of something as an active absence um, mm. that is presencing through the body. And then that can eventually, if you really stabilize in that, um, and it's not sequential really, um, but there could be a stabilization that that actually begins to open up into non-dual 
types of experience. Yes. Um, and so that working along that line of, of the energetic sensing is really a good bridge, I think, between the propositional and moving into the other P's and, and kind of helping you to deepen into your immediate embodied experience of those things. I think the uh, the spiritual somatic access, the ineffable uh, in our spirit of transcendence and the ineffable in our, the soul of our embodiment are going to now re receive increasing cultural attention and their prominence and importance is going to shift uh, because a lot of stuff that we used to identify as properly human is being taken away um, uh, by the advent, um, uh, the very imminent advent of, uh, of, a of AGI. And so um, I think it's important to note that I think this is going to be a proper part of an increasing concern with spiritual somatic, uh, the spiritual somatic access, um, and that getting clear about this, like we're trying to do here, I like. Sorry, I don't. I'm not trying. I'm trying to phrase this so it doesn't self, self, sound self-congratulatory. But I'm trying to make the argument that what we're doing here right now needs to be taken up by a lot of people and more and more and, and developed, uh, precisely because there's going to be increasing pressure that this axis will be the home, the anchor of what human identity is. Um, that that's a prediction I'm making, and I think it's a very plausible prediction. And I do have a concern that many of the standardized versions of the legacy religions aren't properly disposed to dealing with that shift in a good way. Um, and so um, for those of you who are watching this, I'm going to make a request that you think about, you obviously have an interest in this topic, um, is that you think about promoting a deeper and more careful discussion about all of this and more learning about it. There's some excellent books out. I can't remember the name of the person who wrote the, he literally wrote the book and I met him at both conferences, Simon, and I can't remember Simon's last name, um, but he wrote, literally wrote the book called The Subtle Body. And he's not taking a position, but it's this great genealogy comprehensive thing. Um, and I recommend you find a way to trace into this really carefully and rigorously and reflectively like we're trying to do here. Because two things I think are also going to be prominent, people capitalizing on this um, in an exploitative fashion, people that are charlatans about this, they're going to find that this is a new niche, for at least for a while, that they can capitalize on. And so um, get ahead of the curve of the bullshit artists as fast as you can. And let's let's try and engender a cultural discussion around this that is properly careful and reflectively rigorous. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh... You know, I'm, what just popped up for me, as it often does, is this great Nietzsche quote where he says, uh, once you have shown that the soul is a name for something in the body, you have not therefore disproven the soul, but proven that you do not fully understand the body. Yeah. Right? So that's a way of saying the subtle body is an aspect of embodied experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's the key here is when the subtle body is treated as something other than lived experience, then it's problematic. But if it's treated as part of lived experience, then it's at the very core of especially what we need at this moment in history, because we have 
we have a problem now establishing humanizing identity apart from the cultural traditions we've inherited. Exactly. Body is a place we can return to to get that. We have a problem relative to humanity's relationship to ecology and the stimulating quality that's shared among organisms is a way to bring religion and culture back to that focus. And like you were saying, John, uh, it, it's a properly organic dimension of the human experience that sets us apart from the things that AI can do, which are starting to include a lot of things that were previously at the heart of our definition of ourselves. So yes. if those are not at the heart of that definition, something else about the lived experience and the way that that excites us has to be at that heart. But it needs to be transrational, not pre-rational in internal language. Yeah. Yes. It's got yeah. to be good yeah. faith and carefully approached. Yes. Yeah. I also really just appreciate the call that you just made and, and wholeheartedly stand behind that call and, and what Layman just said. And a couple things. One, I uh, am part of a meta theory organization, uh, applied meta theory, taking meta theoretical constructs and applying them to real world problems to help navigate in, in wicked messes. And there's a lot of work we've been doing around that. Uh, working with police departments and working with all kinds of things to help. Uh, it's a pretty hopeful project that I was involved in. But as AI is coming on more and more, some of the tools and the ways of working, um, especially, are, are coming into question. How useful are what we doing is what we're doing here now in the advent of AI, when probably a lot of this lens constructing and things like that is going to be available through AI in a short time. So I'm just mentioning that because one of the things that we came to is this area of working internally within it, the human being is probably not something that AI is going to touch. And so while, while some of the areas where we were wanting to do human knowledge work might be becoming irrelevant, that seems like a place where it's it's still going to, the living relationship of actual um, working deeply psycho-spiritually within the individual is going to remain a human resource for a while. Um, but the other thing, yeah, related to that, there was a uh, uh, a comment by the creator of ChatGPT that he thinks that um, AGI, when it emerges, is going to be the best meditation teacher ever. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see about that. Um, I, I don't think so. Um, well, we, was could, steer, point we could steer it so it could be. We could steer it so it could be. It, I don't think there's any inevitability in it. The people, I mean, uh, I don't know when this will be released because uh, at the point, uh, at the, today that we're filming this is the day I'm going to release my video. Uh, we're, we're releasing my video essay about the GPT machines. I, I, and I, I dislike the, you know, the waving of intelligence as a magic wand. They're like, oh, don't worry. It's like, Truth st truths still remain even in the face of advanced intelligence there are still limits like and, and, and i won't get into that in detail but what but i don't think there, i don't think he's i don't think he's inevitably right but we could right if, if if we choose to and that's a choice point by the way if we choose to properly embody these intelligences and properly socially culturally uh, educate them. We could steer them to being silicon stage sages. That is a possibility. That's not a right around the corner, by the way. Uh, but if we that is, we could do that. I th I think he's wrong to think it's an inevitability. Uh, 
but I do want to I do want to argue for a, a real possibility. And here's how to buttress what we're saying and what you're saying, Bruce. I'm sorry I interrupted, but right, we have to become the templates of this even better than we currently are, right? Yeah. Right. And so that's an additional obligation on us, right? If we want to steer these things, so they're silicon sages, we have to be better at the spiritual this this the spiritual somatic access of our embodiment um, in order to provide proper templates for how to be embodied in a way that is conducive uh, to the cultivation of wisdom. Sorry, I just I just wanted to I just wanted to put that in there. Wonderful. I, I love that. And the other piece that I'm glad you did that because I was forgetting what I wanted to say. And now in that space, I remembered it. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Glitchy human mind. Um, I just finished a course, teaching a course on Monday uh, on an integration between David Bohm's embodied work and then working David Michael Levin's approaches to cultivating and developing and unfolding the senses. And I found that was actually a really fruitful exercise over six weeks. It needs to happen in a bigger form. But yeah. What was really rewarding to me, and I was just bringing it up as a kind of echo of some things that were just said about the body and the, the need for that kind of valuation that we need to take seriously and really work with that again, is a, a fairly consistent response that I got from people by the end of the course is, I'm actually experiencing the world in a much more open and fluid way than I ever have before. I was taught to hate my body, and now I'm finding yeah. it to be a treasure. Um, things like that where, and the avenue was not picking up some kind of esoteric thing, but picking up how the body responds to movement in the world, that's the Bohmian thing, and looking at the structuring of our sensory experience, um, and both how it gets fixated in particular ways, how there are edges that we can explore, and how sensory experience can be deepened both into a reclamation of earlier modes and the facilitation of the emergence of, of new modes, which are not esoteric and far out. It's just a deeper sense of contact and participation, height, <laughs> letting yeah. go and letting be experience with the world. It, it doesn't need to start in any kind of esoteric place. It doesn't even need to start necessarily with talking about energy just working with the body and the senses will take you there um, is my yes. experience. Yeah, I agree totally with that. Uh, so two things are coming up for me. And one is I'm looking forward to seeing your video on chat GPT because I'd forgotten that I wanted to ask you if you would be on an integral stage series. We've just started about AI. Sorry, was our first guest, but we're yeah. going to try to drill down on that. And your cognitive approach would be great in that series. If you're open to that at some point, I'm very open to that. Let's make that happen. Terrific. Um, the other one is, I feel like we haven't touched very much on the moral dimension uh, of subtle energy. And to me, it has a like morality has a positive and negative valence situation. So the positive is, there's a way in which being aware of the stimulation in an other places you in a new relationship of care mm -hmm. for them. Right. So that's very positive. On the other hand, there's the kind of vampiric approach of being um, so sensitive to the potential energy in another that you want to violate them to get access to it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then there's also the problem of, you know, famously in the book Kundalini by Gopi Krishna, right? There's a possibility of 
uh, negative overload of energy in the nervous system that if a person is not prepared or if they have other contraindications, yeah. then it can be an extremely upsetting thing for them to have access to those extra stimulations. Yes. Yes. I agree. I should get going gentlemen, but All right. Um, I, I, I thank you for this. I think this is, this, this was really good. And I think it's really opportune. Like, I think it really like, this is this is a, like we're in this kairos and this is this is finding a, a proper place within the kairos i really like i've liked all of them but this one is really singing to me about sort of ah right now this is the timing this needs to go out right now wonderful then i'll get editing as soon as we hang out <laughs> <laughs> beautiful wonderful to be with you both as always 